Well, Harvest, as you're taking your seat, uh, please take a hold of your Bible and uh, turn it to probably about page 200, 250, depending on your Bible, to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. We are transitioning from our We Are series into our He Is series uh, through the book of Judges. And I want to begin by having us read verse 1 of Judges. And uh, we're just going to dive in. Let me read that. You there? Getting there? All right. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. And they inquired, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Well, we start in the first verse and there's three things that are going on. Uh, One of the things is that a leader has died. Joshua has died. The second thing is, is that the people are inquiring of the Lord. By the way, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, They're inquiring of the Lord. And third, it's like, bam, we're in a war. Uh, An understandable question is, is what in the world are we stepping into? I mean, I have to tell you, Judges is one of those books where if you just open it and start reading, it's just like, um, what? Uh, This is not the kind of book to do that, uh, unless you have some background. Let me even kind of help put us at ease or uh, informed about this book by three uh, pastors or commentarians or theologians here. Uh, first one, Dale Davis. You can see up on the screen in his quote, he says here, the church in general has a problem with the book of Judges. It is so earthy, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent, in a word, so strange, that the church can scarcely stomach it. The church has a way of dealing, I love this, dealing with, quote, embarrassing scripture. How do we do that? Oftentimes we just ignore it. Yet that is difficult to do with judges. It is so interesting. I like this. Only people who take tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it. We must see the beauty of Yahweh our God here. If we do, we can be sure we have begun to handle the scripture rightly. Let me go to the next one, Gordon Caddy. He says, why has the book of Judges been so neglected in our day? Is it because we regard it as no more than a source of Sunday school, Bible stories, uh, suitable only for the simplest moral instruction of primary level children? Even ministers who generally preach consecutively through Bible books, which is generally me, tend to bypass Judges, not It is hard. It is a hard book about hard times. It uh, deals with sin very explicitly, showing it in all its ugliness and repulsiveness. Three millennia have passed since then, but human nature is in the same need as it ever was. But the Lord has not changed either. His message is one of hope and a victory for a darkening world. And the last one, uh, you may be familiar with Tim Keller. He says, the book of Judges is not a book of virtues. It is not full of inspirational stories. It is about a God of mercy and long suffering who continually works in and through us despite 
our constant resistance to his purposes. Ultimately, there is only one hero in this book, and he is divine. And here we enter the book of Judges. Uh, Friends, we are entering into a very interesting time in God's redemptive history work in this book. Uh, It starts out fast and furious, and in light of that, I think there are really two ways for us to enter this book. Um, Neither are by a VW van, okay? Um, Have the funeral with that. Um, (laughs) It's hard. But here's two other modes of kind of uh, off a similar idea how we can enter into it. One is uh, for all you Trekkies, we can enter by teleportation. In other words, it's kind of like uh, Star Trek dematerialization where it's just like, push the button, bam, we're in, let's go. And it's kind of like we land in chapter one and we find out where we've landed and we figure it out as we go. And by the way, that's a, I had actually thought of doing that with us, but, but then because of my uh, interest in aviation, I decided we are going by instead a Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird Mach 3 stealth-like X-Men-like jet. Do you not want one of those? (laughs) I don't want to pay for it. But uh, uh, listen, it's interesting. By the way, that jet, its last flight was in 1999. And yet, is that not the coolest thing ever? Uh, Live in my world with me just for a little bit. Is that not cool? Okay, but, but here's the deal. Here's the point. If we go by teleportation, it's like, bam, bam, we're there. And we're just gonna start. But, but I, I don't wanna ease our way into it. I do wanna go supersonic there. So what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna take about a 30 minute flight and then we're gonna read through the book, uh, not the book, the <laughs> ju- Judges chapter one, okay? So consider it this way. Um, we are going to load, we are going to fly across the Atlantic and we are headed to this place. Uh, if we can put that up, we're headed there. Okay, and so we're headed there, but what the, the blackbird gives us the opportunity is has a little bit of time to brief together on where we're going, okay? And we're gonna do that. So uh, I just wanna ask again for God's help in us as we do this. God, I pray as we load this jet with our Bibles fully open, um, throttle push forward, down the runway, lift off, Wheels off the ground. Lord, we have this time to savor you, understand you, and especially by understanding what you are doing, what you have done. So I pray right now, God, would you help us to see your redemptive work in whole? Because it is amazing. You are doing something and you are at work and we want to know you more. So show us yourself, Lord, show us yourself. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we're up in the air and uh, no bumps, uh, all really cool flight. Uh, Turn you in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. Uh, I want to do an in-flight briefing. I... uh, 
want to begin with this statement. The Godhead has always been about a people with a God-given purpose and place. The Godhead has always been about having a people with a God-given purpose and a place, and I want us to see it. So if you're not familiar with your Bible and the story, here we go. I would really encourage you to hang with me. If you don't have a Bible open on your lap, please would you grab one? Because I think it's so important to see what we're about to do and see it in here. Okay, we're gonna be flying. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the what? Okay, so that means we are not here by freakish accident. You know that? We are not here by some freakish accident. We are here by a God-designed, divine uh, uh, plan and purpose. And that statement right there should give you and I incredible encouragement because we know sometimes we're kind of freaks, but we are not here by freakish accident. Okay, we are here on purpose. What is that purpose? Look at verse 26, chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's really interesting because already we have a plurality God, a Trinitarian God as we understand it biblically. And he says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the, of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over it. And here we begin, God creates a people. He gives them a purpose, a, a, a rule over, but really the purpose is bigger than that. I want more like you. That's the ultimate purpose. And by the way, he gives them a place uh, called earth. And they are there. Uh, now, turn a few pages over to Genesis 6. And you can just take a look there. This is like the divine reboot. Uh, uh, the sin on earth, you can see in verses 5 through 8, the sin of the wickedness of man has grown so great that God's like, time to reboot. And so without going through the details of it, he does. Genesis 7, the flood takes place. Then look over to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God, this is after the flood, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, now we have, I would say, a created and now redeemed people given a purpose and a place, yes, it's still earth. Uh, with that, now go to Genesis 12. By the way, uh, last year I was listening to History Channel. They were talking about possible earth uh, catastrophes. One PhD uh, guy was saying that if there was ever a flood, they weren't even talking about the Noahic flood he was saying, if there was a flood, all carbon dating would be irrelevant because of the physics of a flood. I'm just throwing that out there. 
chapter 12. Now the Lord, verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Who's going to make them a great nation and give them a land? God is. Let's say it this way. The sovereign warrior pursuer is. He is the one is. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at chapter 13, verse seven, the end of verse seven. This is critical for judges as we enter it. Look, end of verse seven. At that time, the who? The Canaanites and the who? I just wanted you to have to say it. We're dwelling in the land. What land? The land that God had for his people. Tuck that away in the back of your memory bank. Go to Genesis 15. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for how many years? Um, that's Exodus. We're gonna be there in just a minute, but understand this, from the time that that was said, beginning of Exodus, chapter one is about, round numbers, 200 years from right then. Oh, and by the way, in it, they say that they will be afflicted for 400 years, but he will bring judgment and then he will bring them out. Oh, that's about 600 to 650 years from right there. Listen, friends, God knows what he's doing. And God is building up a people, promising a people with a promised place and a purpose. Uh, that's always what the Lord has been about. Look at verse 20 uh, down there. Actually, let's pick up uh, verse 19. The land, uh, I'm sorry, let's go 18. I just keep backtracking. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, he said to your offspring, I will give you this land. What land? This land. Uh, the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, uh, the land of the uh, Kenites, Kenizzites, Catamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, Re- the Raphium, the Amorites, the who? the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Listen, God already knows what's going on in two paragraphs. He has just told us way in advance that there is going to be coming the book of Exodus and then there is going to be coming the book of Joshua and Judges. Okay, listen friends, God knows exactly what's going on and I really am highlighting that because we just came off of the book of Revelation. God knows exactly what's going to be taking place. He's got it, let's chill, let's ride this baby strong in faith and confidence in who he is and what he's doing. Okay, turn to Genesis chapter 50, the end of the book. We've gone from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham. Uh, Now in the time, uh, Abraham has now gone to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. Joseph has been sold and sent to Egypt. At this point in time, he's already been vice president of Egypt. Uh, God has used him greatly, chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He's before his brothers who sold him into slavery. Uh, Family dysfunctional, right? Right? dysfunctional family and God still uses people out of that. Then there he is, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. And they did. 
But look at this theology. Joseph says, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What does all this have to do with God raising up a people with a purpose and a place? Look at Exodus chapter one. <clears throat> Verse five. I'm curious, what is this people that the Lord has been raising up? How impressive are they? Verse five. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now that is one impressive group. Not it's like 70-ish people. That's it? Yep, that's it. But God is raising up a people with a God-given purpose and of whom he's promised a place to which they can function and do their God-given purpose. Let's keep moving. Uh, we go to Exodus chapter one, verses six through seven. Then Joseph died. That happened fast. And all his brothers died and all that generation. Like, let's just get to the next thing. Uh, verse seven, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Like how many, Pastor Doug? Like about 2 million of them. God has gone from Abraham, Adam and Eve, Noah, um, Abraham, all the way up here. And now there is a people there is a people of some two million that God in his divine work has raised up. Uh, they are slaves in Egypt. That's not their place and that's not their purpose. But God's bringing it all together. God's doing work. We go to look at chapter three of Exodus. We see this whole thing. Uh, God grabs this guy named Moses who's out with his sheep and he's, uh, chapter three, is like, uh, hey, Moses, I call you. And Moses is like, what? Who am I? And God is like, Moses, I will be with you. And then chapter four, Moses, uh, they won't believe me. They won't listen to me. God, then show them the whole staff snake in your hand and your cloak thing. Okay, if you don't know what that is, read it. And he's like, please, someone else, not me. And God is like, in uh, modern day English terminology, Moses, stop it. I will be with you. I will go with you. Now go. And by the way, how cool is it? Moses goes. What's the Lord doing? I mean, seriously, what is all this all about? The Lord is in the process of raising up a people with a God-given purpose and place. What's the status of that process? Two million, that's impressive. Slaves, not their purpose yet. In Egypt, not their place yet. Hmm, but God's at work. Look at Exodus chapter seven through 11. Just scan through it. It's the 10 plagues, actually the nine through chapter 11. We have water to blood and frogs and gnats and flies and livestock die. There are boils and hail and locusts and darkness. 
What in the world's the Lord doing? Answer, he is raising up a people, preparing them for a purpose and a place. God's at work. And we just want to microwave everything. But know this, he is patient and he's headed exactly where he wants to head. And then we come to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. The 10th plague. Um, Verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt at night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Oh, friends, can you imagine this? Why is God doing all this? Because he is raising up a set-apart people. And a set-apart people need to see who their God is. And God has been showing them, not only through the generations and the periods of time, but God with these people, these two million slaves in Egypt, God has been showing his mighty power over the last days, weeks, months with the plagues that are taking place. And here on this 10th plague, God is about ready to set a people that get it. What are they to get? They are to understand that they are to find a, 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 a un blemished male lamb and kill it. And they are to eat it. They are to take the blood and apply the blood over the door frames of their house. The door is where they go in and out of. And then at that night, those who have, are you hearing me on this? Those who have applied the blood of the lamb to their house as God comes over and brings his judgment, all who are under the blood are saved from what they deserve. And can you imagine that night? When the Lord is passing over, and certainly, by the way, this was open to Egyptians to do the same as well. Can you imagine that night? When the noises are going on, and you are like, oh, I pray this blood does it. I pray this blood does it. You with me? Oh Lord, I pray this is it. (laughs) And the Lord passes over and you've been spared. There is faith in that house. Can I have an amen? Amen. If you want to know what the gospel is all about, you just heard it. The lamb 
and the blood applied to cover over the rightful judgment of a holy God. Look at Exodus 13. The people consecrate themselves before crossing. They are a set-apart people. Look at Exodus 14. They cross the Red Sea. A people redeemed. How cool. Uh, Look at Exodus 19. Here they are on Mount Sinai, verse 19, verse one. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord God called out to out to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. By the way, that is the sovereign warrior pursuer that he is. Now therefore, very important for book of Judges, if you will indeed obey my voice, And keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Listen, friends, do you understand that what he has just said, what is their purpose? They are to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests aren't all about just going somewhere and hunkering down and being about themselves. What does the priest do? The priests are all about taking who God is to the people. Listen, the whole promised land idea is I'm giving you a place that remember when we went through Joshua, if you were here, that when you, when a promised land place that is not a holding place, it is a sending base place. The holy land is not the place where priests go and hunker down. The holy land is the operations base to bring who Yahweh is to the entire world. This is a priestly kingdom people, not the only people. They are the ones that God has selected to go. And God's giving them a land out of which they can operate. Listen, friends, there there is just the, oh God, help me. There's such a cool story in all this, in understanding what life is all about, what God is doing and building all this and putting all this together. God is building a people with a purpose and a place. Look over verse 16, chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders. And there were lightnings. And there was a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended it on fire. And the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled 
greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. I mean, can you just imagine? Listen, listen to me, everybody look at me. Can you imagine if you have been a people raised up in slavery and then all of a sudden you see a God that does a work unlike anyone did a work, brings you out, brings you before his mountain and shows himself and lays you face down. Listen, friends, that's who he is. And a people of his see that. And a people who have been able to see this are a people who have been positioned and have been given experience to be able to be a people who could go to the world and tell them about this God. Do you see what the Lord is doing? He has not just called a people to just like be a people. He has called a people and he has shown himself. And now a people who have seen God have a basis of which now to function as a people with a God-given purpose and a God-given place. Chapter 23 of Exodus. Let me just sum it up. Um, no, actually, I need to read this. Cursed clock. Twenty-three, verse thirty-one. The Lord says, "I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before me." I would encourage you to underline that. If you have one of those funky tech things, rub your finger over it and make it yellow. Verse 32, oh, by the way, also with this, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest, you, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay, does everybody understand what the Lord's just said? You're to go in, you're to drive the people out who are there. You're to make no covenant with them or with their gods. You're not to have them dwell with you. Why is that? Because God is raising up a priestly people in a a set-apart people in a set-apart place to do a set-apart task. Go to the book of Joshua. Chapter one, I'm not gonna read it. Moses dies. Um... I'm sorry, Joshua dies. Moses has already died as well before that. But know this, they're not in the promised land, but they send spies to check it out. They have not entered yet. Um, Spies come back the end of chapter two and they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt because of us. 
they are seeing God's at work. Chapter 3, they consecrate themselves. Chapter 4, I don't know if you were here, do you remember? They stand a half mile back and the Ark of the Covenant is carried into the waters and once again these people see God at work again. The next generation sees God at work in parting this sea and this was no little small river like some people talk about. And it parts and they walk across on dry ground. Go to the end of Joshua chapter 24. Chapter 24, the promised land is not fully conquered yet. It's partially conquered. And Joseph, Joshua has kind of a closing time with the people. Uh, chapter 24, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river of Egypt. Serve the Lord. And he asked them, uh, will you serve the Lord? People say, yes, yes, we will serve the Lord. He is our God. And then verse 19, Joshua responds back, you are not able to serve the Lord. (laughs) This is a pushback. This is a think before you answer. Are you really sure about your commitment? Because if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, verse 20, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you had chosen the Lord to serve him. Understand this. And then they say, we are witnesses. Know this, Joshua is not setting them up. Joshua is not desiring their failure. Joshua understands the severity and the seriousness of this. And he's making sure this is no game, you guys. This is no game. I'm talking full in or out. And they're in. And turn the page. And the blackbird has arrived. Look out your window. You can see the 12 God-given territories for the 12 tribes that are forming. They have not fully formed yet. We've gone from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses to Joshua. In 30 minutes. In Judges chapter 1. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the entire chapter. There are a host of things that we could spend time with, but I'm not going to do that. I I need for us to uh, kind of picture this. The blackbird is hovering over it, and so we're at like 10,000, 20,000 foot altitude, and so we're going to get the big picture of Judges chapter 1. And I want for us to see something. Joshua's died. The people have committed. They will faithfully serve the Lord as he has requested of them to do. This is no little thing. This is about a a, a priestly nation being set up to serve their God. I I wonder how they're going to do here. By the way, Judges chapter 1 is not a geographical conquest summary. It's more of a, let's call it a theological state of the union address. Consider it that way. I wonder what is the spiritual position and condition of this generation. After the death of Joshua, 
The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Hopefully now you have a little context. And the Lord said, Judah, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. This isn't plural. His hand, him representing the people. Judah said to Simeon, his full blood brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. By the way, something I just didn't have time to cover, I had to cut out was, is God's intention was that each tribe would experience the the conquering of their particular territory. What's happening right now? Judah, the largest tribe... Simeon, as you can see, is kind of contained within the territory of Judah. Simeon is the smallest of the tribes, I think like Numbers 26 or 29, is the smallest of the tribes. And God has said, essentially, I want for each of the tribes to experience the taking of your territory. Why would God do that? Because God wants his people to experience who he is. And here Judah is talking to Simeon. I'm the big brother. You're the smaller of us. Hey, we're kind of together. Why don't we go take this over together? It doesn't sound like that big of a problem, but wait a second. That's not exactly the way God said to do it. But it sure does make human sense. Just saying. So Simeon went with him, verse four, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites, remember those? Into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them in Bezek. We'll, we'll talk about the whole, um, I have to toss this. Canaanites and Perizzites, friends, the Lord has given them decades and centuries to be able to come under the Lord's authority. And you need to know this. The Canaanites and the people in this territory were some of the brutalest people ever on the face of the earth, burning, sacrificing their children. And one of the things that we have a hard time with and why we avoid texts like this is we look and we go, God's people aren't supposed to be mean. God has been patient with them wanting all that would come unto him. And yet they have rejected and rejected and rejected and it's time for God's judgment to come. And God brings it. He is sovereign warrior pursuer. Verse five, some other freaky stuff. They found Adonai Bezek, Ad Bezek, and this is like the governor, the mayor, the king, who, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, caught him, cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now that's not what Christian people do. I mean, I'm already out of this book and we've gotten like only seven verses. Uh, I don't like what's going on. Uh, One of the things is, is what did the Lord tell them to do? The Lord told them to drive them out, take them out, and here God's people are cutting thumbs and toes off. That's not what God asked them to do. But if you have a hard time with the whole thing of them doing it, look at this. The guy who got his thumbs and his toes cut off, let's just let him speak for it. Because he does. Look at this. 
Verse seven, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. Listen, the, the dude cut off thumbs and toes of 70 other kings, mayors, governors, had them so that they couldn't hold a sword and they couldn't run. And he had them eating like dogs around his table. But listen to me while it's like, yep, eye for an eye. But the fact of the matter is, this is not the way God told his people to do it. God actually told him to take him out. Don't play with his fingers. God's people are playing. Verse eight, and the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterwards, uh, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and in the Negeb and in the lower land. And Judah uh, went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they defeated Sheshai and uh, those other places. Verse 11, here's kind of a cool thing. Ladies, actually, this is a cool thing. Don't read this like this poor lady. Read this like this gal here. She's fighting for her dowry. This is really cool. We don't have time for it, but there were some good things happening. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deborah. And the, uh, the name of Deborah was formerly this other name. And Caleb said, he who attacks this place and captures it, I will give him uh, Aksaw, my daughter. Uh, think of Haksaw, but that's not a very nice name for a daughter. Uh, for a wife, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, Caleb, we saw in Joshua, captured it. He gave him Aksaw, his daughter, for a wife. Uh, when she came to him, she urged him to ask. She urged Othniel, come to her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey. Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Listen, friends, just let it go. God's putting some things on the table. It'll come up later in the text as we get there, but just know that some cool things are happening. This lady rocks. I'm just going from there. Verse 16, we're still with Judah and the descendants of the Kenite. Moses' father-in-law went up to the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev after, or near Arad and, and went uh, and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, even though he wasn't functioning exactly the way the Lord asked him, by the way, be very encouraged by that. Because if we read a text like this and we get in the speck of Judah's eye and miss the log in our own and realize he pursues his people. He pursues his people and the Lord was with Judah. He took possession of the hill country. Look at this. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Why? Because they had chariots of iron. What? Dude, you have God. You have God. And you can't drive out these little ancient chariots of iron? Excuse me, friends, do you see something's not going right? At the core and the base, human thinking is working together. God's purposes and plans are not being followed as God asked them to be followed. Even though he is with them, even though he's allowing good things to take place, they are 
in a subtle shift away. Oh, please, don't be lost yet. Now we go, we're finishing out. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out, there were three sons of Anak. Okay, here we go. But the people of Benjamin, the people of Benjamin, uh, the people of Benjamin, we've got three places now, they did not drive out the Jebusites. Okay, go to verse 22. The house of Joseph, which really is most likely referring to Ephraim, uh, mentioned here a little bit later. It says that the Lord was with them. That was all very cool, but go down to verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Go back to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Look at verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Look at verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. At the end of verse 32, they did not drive them out. Look at verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Oh, and by the way, because of time, you read those. Because you will find not only did they drive them out, but what that meant was that they remained with them. What had God told them to do? Drive them out. Don't let them be with you. But they have. And then Dan, the last one. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling. Who cares what the Amorites want? What does God want? And you can see at the end of verse 35, but they were subjected to forced labor. Okay, let's wrap it. Look at the map. Judges chapter one, I would say, is telling us this picture of the map. There is a systemic issue going on. If this were the kind of thing where one of God's tribes were having a hard time or struggling with it, I'm convinced that God in his patience and long suffering would have worked with them in it. But what Judges chapter one is showing us is that there is a systemic thing throughout all of God's people. And all of them are not doing as the Lord had asked in this area. They were partially doing what God asked them to do. They were partially being what God asked them to be. And the whole book of Judges, I think, builds off of exactly that problem. What happens when we are not who we say we are? the book of Judges. Chapter two, verse one. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal and Bacham and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. How cool is that? And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars because you have not obeyed my voice. By the way, holistically, systemically, what is this you have done? Now, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they will become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bachem, 
And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Three minutes. Five subtle shifts. When God's people have these things happen, we're in trouble. When God's proclamations become increasingly non-authoritative. When God's proclamations become increasingly non-authoritative. Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? That's not what he meant. He didn't really even say that. That's not from God. That's human truth. Number two, God's purposes become increasingly questions. Questioned. God's purposes become increasingly questioned. Hold on, he said, what? Why would the Lord ask that? What's his purpose behind that? Why would God do that? And then God's plans become increasingly unreasonable. I wouldn't do it that way. That plan makes no sense. That's odd, that's over the top, that's inconsistent, that's ridiculous. Why did he do that? Why did he ask that? Why did he call for that? When God's person becomes increasingly fallible. What kind of a God is that that does that? He's not good, he's not loving, he's not kind, he's not in control. He's not holy, in fact, he's unkind, he's unfair, he's cruel, he's a mass murderer. I've even heard used. What is there to respect, admire, to love about who he says he is? And fifth, God's power becomes increasingly unnecessary. I can make it happen. We can make it happen. Hey, he called us. It's up to us now. It's dark days when God's people make this kind of a shift. And friends, I'm just going to speak for the church in America. But this shift is holistic and systemic. Lord, I pray as we begin this journey through this book of these dark days and hard times of God's people struggling, I pray we would learn from them. But most of all in this, Lord, I pray that we would see you Because, Lord, I still believe that the objective you had in the very beginning of creating a people with a purpose and a place is still the same case today. Lord, I pray as a people here in the place that you have put us here on the west side of Indianapolis and on this earth, oh, dear God, I pray we would pursue to be who we say we are. We would pursue to be who you call us to be. Not a perfect people. Oh no, that'll never happen short of heaven. But a pursuing you, seeing you, face down, loving you, growing, maturing, together in you people. Eyes on the cross where the Lamb's blood was shed. Eyes on the empty tomb 
where the one was raised from the dead. Eyes on the Revelation 1, 1. Who we fall down before and worship and adore. Eyes on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.